your Bibles to the book of Romans, fourth chapter. I'm going to read verse. Are we good? No? I'm going to read verses 13 through 17. A couple quick announcements. Uh, while Bruce is working on the microphone, is uh, Monday nights we are here at 4 o'clock for prayer. Unless everything's perfect in your life, we are here for prayer. Tuesdays we are here at 5 o'clock. Wow. Ooh. I'm flashing back. So Tuesdays we are here from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock. I hear the ladies eat very well. It's a woman's only Bible study. So that is here. Wednesdays, we have the New Believers Bible Study from 6 to 7. We ground you in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Thursday, we have the more inductive Bible study, a little bit more advanced, uh, with uh, the Professor Emeterius, Dr. Carter there, Thursdays. Uh, I want to encourage you guys to plug in. Uh, his is from 5.30 to 6.30. Thank you, Sheila. So I want to encourage you to plug into these studies because the goal is for you to get grounded in the Word of God. So when you hear things that are erroneous, you have the Scriptures locked into you to know what is truth and what is error. Okay, so you're not succumbing to every wind of doctrine that just comes down the pike. All right. Um, also, uh, well, that's not, yeah, not, no, no, not, that's... It's for the people that are in the church here, yes, not around the world. So, yes, thank you. Anyway, we're going to uh, get started. So if you want to follow along on the overhead, we're going to continue on our studies through the book of Romans, chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 13 through 17. So follow along with me, please. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. <clears throat> For if those, if, notice the clause, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Verse 15. <clears throat> For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it is by faith <clears throat> that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, <clears throat> excuse me, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17. As it is written, A father of many nations I have made you in the sight of him, who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Amen? What a powerful God. So I'm going to do a little bit of a review from last week, slide three. <clears throat> We're going to just, just snapshot a couple verses and go right into the new material We consider can, as we continue going through the book of Romans. So Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you might live. So we've learned that the Lord was far more interested in the cutting away of sin from our hearts. Every male child of Israel back in the Old Testament was a living testimony that men's hearts needed spiritual circumcision and cleansing. And for you and I today, church, when we are baptized, after we come to faith in Christ, our baptism symbolizes our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. It's identification. When we take communion, it symbolizes Christ's redemptive act on our behalf till He comes again. But neither of those rites or ordinances we practice have any saving merit in of themselves. You're not saved because you get baptized. You're not saved because you take the Lord's Supper. These are outward demonstrations that reveal the inner heart that understands that salvation is 100% entirely God's act, and we can never be saved by performing these acts, just like being circumcised back in the Old Testament days did not save anyone. It didn't save Abraham. It did not save David. We are made right only through the finished work of Christ on our behalf. No other way. And it is, only, it is the only way we are ever declared right in the Father's eyes. So, look at verse 11, slide 4. <clears throat> and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, he's talking about Abraham, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness may be credited to them. Slide 5, and I like how the NLT puts it, New Living puts it. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. And if you remember, we don't have time to go through it all. You know, this was, that happened 14 years before circumcision came on the scene. So Abraham is the spiritual father of all those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous only because of their faith, church. So we already can see from the scriptures that Abraham was considered the father of all the Jews, but Paul moves it along and takes it further here in the text. He is clearly referring to all those who are Gentiles or non-Jews as well. And he's driving home this point that Abraham is the father of all who believe. So again, circumcision had absolutely nothing to do with a person being saved or being declared right with God. And then we looked at how Paul had completed his thought in verse 12, slide 6. Romans 4, 12. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised. But only, look at that, but only if they had the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. Again, which happened 14 years before circumcision was introduced. And we learned last week that Paul was teaching us that Abraham is also the father of those who are circumcised, who are in the faith, 
who believe in Christ. Remember, Abraham believed and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Remember that. So it stands to reason then, if you and I have that same faith that Abraham had, this righteousness is also credited to us as well. How did we sum it up last week? Slide 7. Galatians 5, 6. <clears throat> 4. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love, church. So we have learned that the Jews' hope of righteousness being made right with God was based on the works of the law. It was a vain, that was them, it was a vain attempt on their part to somehow think they needed to complete the work of Christ, which they felt was incomplete. They still thought they had to keep all the rituals and laws and stuff that we've learned in the past times that we've looked through this. But as I said last week, sometimes we feel that we have to do something to make ourselves right with God. You know, Lord, I'll stop getting high, then I'll start, you know, believing in you. Or I'll stop drinking, Lord, then I'll, then I'll come to church and start believing in you. So sometimes we can feel that, hey, I'll clean my life up first and then come to church. Instead of doing it the right way is come to faith in Christ and he'll help clean your life up. Amen. So there are people who come to church week after week after week after week in some vain attempt to somehow feel that they're doing what's necessary to keep their salvation or earn it. But Paul clearly states in the text, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Hear me this morning, church. If you are truly a believer, you've truly come to a saving faith in Christ. That means that you believe that Christ died on the cross to pay your sin debt in full, to redeem you. And you come to believe that the only way that you would ever enter into glory is because of what Christ has accomplished for you, and there's nothing you can do to add it to it in any way, shape, or form. If you believe that, you already possess the imputed righteousness of Christ to your account. Remember, all of your sin and filth and everything in your life was placed on Christ. His perfect life of obedience and righteousness was then placed on you. So when the Father sees you, he sees a son. So you're already made right by faith alone in Christ alone. Remember, we'll preach this till we die. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The scriptures alone are what declares the glory. They are the, the um, finished work of Christ being taught to you through the scriptures, and to God alone be the glory. Let's never forget that. So the outward demonstration such as circumcision, or for you and I today, baptism, is only to reflect what has already taken place inwardly in our hearts. Faith working through love. <clears throat> Meaning, not working through flesh or self-effort. Listen, your good deeds, your works that you do, are a product or a result of your faith in Christ. It is never a substitute for it, or a way of earning salvation. You don't earn salvation by coming to church, putting coins in the plate, cooking breakfast, or doing anything. You don't earn any of it. Hear me. To sum this up, the children of Abraham, as Paul states back in verse 12 of Romans, are those who have 
have the faith that Abraham had. Slide 8. Genesis 15, 6. Then he, that's Abraham, believed in Yahweh. He believed in Yahweh. And it was reckoned, or it was credited to him, as righteousness. It's right there in the text. That's how they were saved in the Old Testament, through faith. That's how we're saved in the New Testament, through faith. So sadly, the Jews back in that day had failed to understand that their circumcision was only a seal of the righteousness, which is by faith alone. So they had kind of like turned it or twisted it around, and they made it into something which made them justified on the basis of works. That's what they thought that they had to do. And as we've learned, they assumed that they were right with God because they were circumcised and because of the rituals and all the things that they had. So the emphasis then in Paul's teaching is that what matters most is not that you are circumcised, but you have faith in Christ alone for your salvation. Slide 9. Verses 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, that he would be the heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You can see Abraham just pounding this to death, trying to get it through to everyone there, especially these young Christians in Rome. Abraham and his descendants, that he would be the heir of the world, was not through the law, not through keeping the law, not through rituals, not through any of that, but through the righteousness of faith. For those who are of the law are heirs. Faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. And slide 10, I'm going to read it to you in the New Living. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by what? Faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment to those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. So Paul has dealt with this argument made by the Jews concerning works. He has dealt with their argument concerning circumcision. Now he's dealing with the promise that was made to Abraham. Paul makes a powerful statement in verse 13. God's promise to give the whole earth, the slide 11, to Abraham and his descendants was not based on obedience to the law. I hope that that's sinking in for us, that we are not trying to earn a really good spot with God. There's no backroom deals. Try to keep the law. Try to be good. Try to do all these acts of service. Try to never break the law. I hope we realize that that has nothing to do with being saved church. The law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. Church, God did not lay down any certain conditions for Abraham to meet 
It was a matter of a promise that God made to him himself. And we've learned from the scriptures that no person can ever come to God and be saved by some ritual or outward ceremony. And if you're in a church that tries to do that, run. Run from that church. You don't get saved by any type of conduct or behavior. The church is not supposed to be about behavior modification. And as we've already learned, Abraham was declared right by God 14 years before he was circumcised. But I also want you to notice the word promise here in the text. Verse 13 says, for the promise to Abraham, right? The promise here. The word is epigaleia. It's actually two Greek words that are put together. Epi, meaning upon, and agaleia, meaning to declare. So then here we have this legal term revealing God's commitment to give something. What is he given? What is the text teaching us? The Lord has declared upon himself a commitment, and this promise was to Abraham. So it's important to note this promise was not made by some negotiation with Abraham or stipulations given to Abraham. It was all God's plan, church. Salvation is 100% all God's plan. So the promise was cemented in God's covenant with Abraham. Let's look at the promise and what it entailed so you and I can better understand what was Paul trying to get across to these young Jews in Rome as well as to you and I. Where do we first find this promise here? Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, 5, and 18, slides 12, 13, and 14. Let's look at this together. (coughs) Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Abraham, I'm I'm going to make your name great, and you're going to be a blessing. So he took Abraham outside and said, Abraham, look toward the heavens. Count the stars if you're able to count them. He said to him, so shall your descendants be. Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What does it tell us? Here we clearly see the promise was made to Abraham would involve him and all his people. So the question is, who are these people? What did we learn last week? Look at slide 15, verse 11. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. Notice what the Lord said to Abraham, slide 16. Genesis 17, 4. As for me, behold, Abraham, listen, as for me, the Lord, behold, my covenant is with you. You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. I'm hoping how we see it fits together. Church, we are not heirs because we could ever keep the law. Thank you. We are heirs because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, which we receive through faith. This promise also includes a blessing. Slide 17. Look at Genesis 12, 2 and 3. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be what? There it is. 
The entire world is blessed through Abraham's descendants. This promise would be fulfilled in the, re, in the giving of a Redeemer. That Redeemer is Jesus Christ. He's the kinsman Redeemer. He's the one that buys us back. The promise to Abraham was an interest, the gospel actually being preached to him. Slide 18. Look at Galatians 3.8. Paul writing to the church of Galatia says, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to Abraham. Well, Pastor Jack, where is Jesus in the Old Testament? Right there. Right there. Christ through the whole scriptures. Everything points to Christ. It's about Christ, church. The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify or make the Gentiles right by faith, he preached the gospel, the Eugalion, the good news, beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. And slide 19, same verse in the NLT. What's more, the Scriptures look forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in, the, in His sight, Because of their what? Faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, All nations, all ethnoses will be blessed through you. Now, church, it gets even better. It is clear that Abraham believed the gospel even when his son Isaac, Abraham's solely divine promised heir, was about to be offered as a sacrifice. Where do we find that in the Old Testament? You know, I'm really glad you asked. Let's look at verse slides 20 through 24. Follow along. Let's, and and you, you see these types and shadows of the gospel all throughout. It's a beautiful picture. By the way, your Old Testament is every bit as important as your New Testament. It's all God's Word. In fact, the whole Bible should really be in red ink because it's all God's Word. So to follow along with me, starting at Genesis 22, verse 2. He said, Take now your son, your only son. Think about that as we go through this. Your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go out to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. <clears throat> so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split wood for a burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 4, 22-4. On the third day, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes. He saw the place from a distance. Abraham says to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Notice he says, We will worship. He doesn't say, We will worship and I'll return to you. We will worship and return to you. Six. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, 
he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Verse 9, slide 22. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. Abraham built the altar. There he arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Look at verse 10. Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. Remember, his only son. Verse 11. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven, said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And he said, by myself, verse 16, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. Your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Church, notice that by faith, Abraham offered up his only begotten son. God, who was speaking to Abraham in verse 2, clearly says this. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. It's interesting, this, the Hebrew word here for only, church, it, it has this idea of this unique, precious, only child, a child like no other. And we see that as a type and shadow of the only begotten of the Father. Woo! Jesus was the monogonese, the only unique, precious son to the Father, much like Isaac was to Abraham. What can we conclude from this? Slide 25. <clears throat> what did Jesus say in John 8, 56? Talking to the Jews, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So it is clear from the word of God that Abraham foresaw this coming Messiah who would be born as one of his promised descendants. We see this in how the Old Testament scriptures give us these types and shadow of what later occurred and was fulfilled in our New Testament. It was through the Messiah, the Christ, that Abraham would bless the entire world. Hear me this morning. If you belong to Christ, you are part of Abraham's offspring and heirs to the promise made by God the Father. All believers are one in Christ, as the Scriptures teach us. Well, where does it say that, Pastor Jack? Well, I'm glad you asked again. How about slide 26 and 27? 1 Corinthians 6, 17. But the one who joins himself to Yahweh is how many spirits with him? One spirit with him. Because we are identified with God's only unique Son, the only begotten, that word begotten 
John 3.16 is, is the Greek word monogenes, or the unique one, the only begotten. So, we, because we are identified with God's unique Son, Jesus, we are called the children, the technons, the children of God. And in Galatians 3.26, slide 27, For you are all sons of God through what? What does it say? What does it say? One spirit with him. You are all sons of God also through faith in Christ Jesus. Slide 28. And if children, Romans 8, 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God. Now, now look at Romans 8, 17. And don't gloss over it. Look, what does the Bible say? If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Doesn't matter if you don't have anything here on earth. Doesn't matter how poor you are. When you draw your last breath here, the Bible says you're an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. Listen, it is important to point out here in the text that you and I are not heirs by some human descent but rather in a spiritual descent. By following Abraham's example of faith, this is what makes us heirs with Abraham and Christ. And I love how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. I know I quote that a lot. Don't hold me. Don't be upset, but I love it. And if you guys want to be smart, get yourself a copy of the Heidelberg Confession. It asks the question, what is true faith? read this before a couple months ago to you. Want to read it again. I like how the document really defines for you and I what true faith is. Let's look at it. True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in His Word is true. It is also a deep-rooted assurance. Notice the text. It is a deep-rooted assurance that is created in you and I by God the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not you and I, but by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven. I have been made forever right with God and have been granted salvation. Man, if that doesn't smack you between the eyes, I don't know what does. That is powerful. And that is out of the Heidelberg Confession. There's a lot of really great documents that a lot of churches don't really bring up. There's the Synods of Dort or the Canons of Dort. There's your Confessions of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a great document. There's some great documents out there that really help us really get a bead on, on having sound doctrine that we're not being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes down the pike. Something to think about, church. Then we come to verse 14 where Paul says, slide 30, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise nullified. Slide 31. 
New Living Translation says this. God's promise is only for those, if, if God's promise, I'm sorry, if God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary. If I can be saved by keeping all the Ten Commandments, then the promise is pointless, but, I, but none of us can. And by the way, here's the thing. If you break one of the ten, you've broken them all. The Ten Commandments we have organized in verses, but it was really only one part, one whole document. So that means if I take the Lord's name in vain, I'm also an adulterer and I'm a murderer. Guilty of all of it. We could never be saved by keeping the law, ever. Don't let any false prophet tell you that you have to earn things and be good and join a church and do all these things in order to be saved. That's not what the Word of God teaches as we're going through it line upon line. So if God's promise is only for those who could keep the law or obey the law, then faith obviously would not be necessary and the promise is pointless. But what does Paul want us to understand about the law today? Look at slide 32. Galatians 3.21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Or I like how the King James says it, God forbid. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. Slide 33. Let's look at it from the New Living Translation. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. It's Paul trying to teach us here. He's trying to teach us that the law was never given to anyone as a means of salvation. Never for the Jews nor the Gentiles. You go through all 66 canonical books of the Bible. You will not find one place that the law was ever given as a means of somebody being able to earn the way into heaven. It's not there. We went all the way back to Genesis 15, 6 and saw that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, not by trying to keep laws. Hear me this morning. Any person who trusts in his or her ability to try to keep the law as a way of trying to earn their way into heaven or earn salvation is cursed because it is impossible for anyone to keep the law perfectly. Like I've said before, Every one of us were born outside of the Garden of Eden, church. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, that sin nature was passed down to every single one of us. We are all born in sin, as the Bible clearly teaches. So what then, Pastor Jack, what then is the purpose of the law? Slide 34. What's the purpose? Church, it was to reveal God's perfect standards of righteousness and to show men that they are unable to keep the law under their own power to live up to God's perfect standards. The very fact that no one or none of us could ever do it should drive each of us to our knees to come to a saving faith in Christ alone. Slide 35. So what is the purpose of the law? Oh, there it is. It's right in the Bible again. Galatians 3.24. The namas, the law has become our tutor to lead us or to point us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Paul told the church of Galatia, 
The law is our schoolmaster, I think some versions have it, our tutor. The law has importance. The importance of it is to lead us to Christ so that we would be justified by faith. I hope and pray that we now understand that we cannot keep the law and it should lead us to see our need for Christ as our Savior who makes us right through faith in Him. Slide 36. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 2. 36 and 37. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. By the way, that word fixing there is the idea in the Greek. It's beautiful. Fixing our eyes, that's a, that is a, a deliberate gazing upon him. You're staring at him. You're gazing at You're fixing your eyes. You're, you're pinpointed gazing on Christ Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he completed all the work which he was able to complete for the Father that he was supposed to do. Which, and then he sat down at the place of honor at the right hand of the Thronos of God. He completed the work. Remember in the Old Testament, they would tie bells around the priest's robe. They would go in there once a year to where the Ark of the Covenant was. They would go into the Holy of Holies, the Holy the Naos. And they had to tie bells on the robe and a rope to them. And they were never able to sit down in there. The work was never done in there. But Christ did it all for us. He completed the work that the Father gave him to do, which was to redeem people like us. So he was able to sit down at that place of honor next to the Father. Isn't that beautiful? Here's the NLT, slide 37. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding the shame. Now he is seated in a place of honor beside God's throne. So what have we learned? We see that Abraham was justified or declared right because of his faith in God and the promises God made in Genesis 15.6. In the same way, when a person comes to a saving faith in Christ alone, believes in God's promise of salvation through Christ alone. This act of faith is now credited to him as Christ's own righteousness. Think about it. Abraham's trust was never church in what he possessed. His trust was in what he was promised. He knew God doesn't break promises. If your faith is anything in anything other than Christ alone, if it's in trying to be good or possessions, you're literally nullifying the work of Christ on your behalf. Look at slide 38. I only have 18 more pages of notes. Don't worry, we'll be out of here by 4. Okay. Romans 4.15. For the namas, the law, brings about, or gay, wrath. That's strong anger. But where there is no law... There's no violation. Now let's think through this. <clears throat> if God accepted us and gave us the promise of inheritance by keeping the law, then our entire focus would always be on trying to keep it perfectly. The law would actually force us to seek after God by trying to keep it. Faith would then have nothing to do with the promise. You see, church, the law 
screams out to you and I, shouts loud out to you and I, the law does, and it says this, break any part of me, and you become guilty, and you're going to be punished. The law is your works, it's your deeds. It says to us, you need to do this, you need to do that, but don't do this and don't do that. You see, the law, it points us to actions and behaviors as well as conduct. And there's nothing wrong with the law, but there's something terribly wrong with us because we were born with a sin nature. We didn't go to elementary school in first grade and kindergarten and have class one-on-one, and here's how to tell a lie, Johnny. Never happened, did it? You see, the law brings out of all of us the very character of sin so that we can see the exceeding sinfulness of our lives. And because of our sin nature, where the law exists, there is this urge in man to push the law to the limits and break it. Speed limit says 25. We're shooting down High Street at 45 miles an hour. We're pushing through it. We're transgressing. No, none of you all, you're all sanctified, never done that. Look at 39. Slide 39. Man has this urge in himself not to be regulated. Not to be ordered around, not to be restricted, not to be ruled over. <clears throat> Man has the urge to seek after his own desires, to do whatever he pleases, to fill the fleshly passions, to get more and more and more. Sound familiar, church? Did to me. Isn't that really pretty much summing up us? So Paul wants us to understand that, listen, when you bring the law into the salvation equation, you're back trying to get saved by being a good person, by works. Faith is then banished. Paul says the law brings about wrath, punishment. Church, think about this. Wrath is the very opposite of the promise of a blessing. Think about that. Wrath... Punishment is the very opposite of the promise of blessing. Why? Wrath, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all righteousness of men who suppress the truth and run righteousness. His anger and wrath against sin means punishment. For the wages of sin is death, right? Yet, God's Promise to Abraham and you and I, as we just read in the text, church, hear what the Bible says. Forgive me, I'm insignificant. It's telling us, it's offering us an inheritance. Wrath means punishment and suffering. But the promise in Scripture is inheritance, life and joy. So then it would seem that Paul's argument with the Jews back that day in Rome is that for the promise to be made through the law is actually a contradiction in terms because the law brings forth wrath. Again, the purpose of the law was to reveal God's perfect standards of righteousness and to show you and I that we are unable to keep the law under our own power and live up to God's standards. Just about done. Slide 40. Catching up the Dr. Carter with these slides. Romans 4, 16 and 17. 
So slide 40 and 41. We're about done. <clears throat> For this reason, it is by faith. It is by faith. Yes, you can underline that in your Bible. It is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. That's right. We're seeing by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom you believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Before you were born, and mom and dad had you, you didn't exist. I didn't exist. I mean, it is hard for me to imagine how anybody cannot believe in the true and living God. Just look at every one of you that's a miracle. How about slide 41? Should I keep calling about 4 o'clock, Pastor Carter? <laughs> Here's the new living. I hope the new living is helping you guys really digest and chew on this some more. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as we had to work for it. Oh, it's given as a free gift. You don't earn a gift. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I've made you a pater, a father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Do you know when you get saved, you're a new creature created in Christ Jesus? You realize that? Doesn't that fire you up? Just think about it. Every sinful, filthy, rotten thing you and I have ever done, God just forgets it. Doesn't hold you, doesn't hold you accountable to it. I mean, that, that should blow your mind. In the preceding verses, Paul had looked at the negative side of things. It was obviously necessary because Paul had to refute the teaching that salvation could be obtained through keeping the law and that the promise to Abraham came through the law. Paul wants you and I to understand that it is through faith. Slide 42. What is faith? <clears throat> yeah, you all are going to run out now and get yourself a Heidelberg Catechism. Let me read it. What is true faith? Faith is the knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. This deep-rooted assurance created... By the way, I'm going to read this slow, and I want to make sure that you grasp every word that is in here. Please, don't, don't mess this up. Faith is the knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals his word, in his word, is true. This deep-rooted assurance, how is it created in us? Who creates that? Yeah. Do you realize faith is a gift? The very faith you need to believe is a gift. It is a deep-rooted assurance 
Do you have that deep-rooted assurance that is created in us by God the Holy Spirit coming through the Eugalian, the gospel, that out of sheer grace that was earned for us by Christ, we have had our sins, what? Forgiven. And we have been made right just temporarily? Oh, forever right with God. And have been granted what? Not by works of the law, not by actions or behaviors, but by faith. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I don't want to keep going. I hope that the scriptures are encouraging you this morning. Let me ask you a very deep question. Do you have presently this deep-rooted assurance that has been created in us by God the Holy Spirit? If you were to drop dead this afternoon, whether by stroke, heart attack, hit by a car, if you were to die this afternoon and you are standing before the bema seat of God, the judgment seat, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, makes it clear that every one of us are going to have to appear before the bema seat of God, the judgment seat. Make no mistake about it. And he was to look at you and say, hey, so-and-so, why should I let you into heaven? There's only one answer to that question. Because I placed my faith and trust in what your son did on that cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago. He bled and died, and he was a ransom that was paid for my life. And I have this deep-rooted assurance that you, God, the Holy Spirit, has placed in me. That Christ has earned my salvation because I can never earn it on my own. I can't make it any more clear than that. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can do that for you. So this morning, while you are here, you do not know if today will be the last day you're alive. You have no clue. Have you come to the place in your life where you realize that your mouth has stopped and that you have no ability on your own to make yourself right with God? Have you come to that place this morning? If you have, I'm going to ask you to cry out to God this morning and surrender your life to Him as He has been freely offered to you in the gospel because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. So if you're here this morning, you listening around the world on Facebook and Sermon Audio and other places, if you sense God the Holy Spirit waking you up calling you out of darkness. It's effectual calling. He's calling you out of darkness. He's woken you up. Now is the time for you to get right with God. We're not promised another day here. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out our world is spiraling out of control, church. It doesn't take a scientist to figure that out. We don't know how much time we have left here. I want to urge you, now is the time, as Spurgeon says, now is the time. Now is the time for you to get right with God. You know what behaviors that you are doing that are sinful. You know them. Every one of you was given a conscience. You know. 
You know there are behaviors right now that you are practicing that you and I both know are spitting in God's face. Now is the time for us to repent. The Bible says, if you, clause there, it's a hint of clause, if you confess your sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to continually, in the Greek, in the tense, continually cleanse you from all righteousness. The very blood that was spilled on that cross, Acts 20, 28, is the very blood that was in, is God's blood that was in the veins of Christ. One drop of that blood could wash the world for millions of years, forever clean. And he spilled blood for you. So I want to encourage you, if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, don't be toying around with your soul. Surrender your life to Christ as he's been freely offered to you in the gospel. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the scriptures. We are without excuse, Lord. Thank you that you loved us so much, knowing we could never keep the law, that you paid it all for us, Jesus. I don't know what it would have been like for any of us here, any of us listening around the world right now, to actually witness when you were being beaten with that flagellum at that whipping stone 39 times, with your flesh being ripped off your body, your spine exposed. And if that wasn't enough, Lord, the Praetorian Guard, kind of like our Navy SEALs of the day, blindfolding you and punching you in the face, putting a crown of thorns on your head and beating it into your skull with a, with a rod. And then, Lord, carrying that cross to Golgotha, that place of Calvary. You did it all for us. And we don't treat you right, Lord. We don't honor you the way you're supposed to be honored, Lord. We wear cross today like a piece of jewelry when it was capital punishment back in the day that you were executed on that cross. Lord, help us to pay attention to the word. Help us to take your life and your love for us seriously. 